Good morning. Good morning. Go. Not that you didn't answer. I didn't hear me either. So that's okay. So, anyway. We're going to be in Psalm 46. Psalm chapter 46. My kids say I'm a nerd. And I admit it some of my sense of humor is kind of leaning the Lord towards that way. And it's just better to own it than deny it. Um, I was shown someone by one of my office mates. It was Jude. And she, <laughs> we, we have, you know, we share a similar sense of humor. So um, she sent me a, a picture of a coffee mug that uh, would be a great gift. Um, I looked it up and it's way too expensive. So don't get any ideas, those of you who hear these illustrations and go out and buy these things for us. So don't do that, okay? Um, but the coffee mug said something to the effect of, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious. Um, if you don't get that joke, just look up Philippians 4.13, and then, yeah, that's fine. There's a part of me that cringes, and maybe some of you do too, when we 21st century Christians take a scripture passage and we put our own spin on it and make it something for us that probably wasn't intended. Take, for example, Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 22 through 23. You don't need to turn there. The Lord's acts of mercy indeed do not end, for his compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so maybe you have in your mind... Uh, this kind of trip that you've just taken to the Christian bookstore and as you're walking through you see the wall plaques and you see one of those plaques that has these verses on it and I'm guessing you probably could find one and it has this verse on the plaque but in the background it also has this scene perhaps of a meadow uh, with the sun rising and there's a, a slight fog just kind of hovering over the ground and maybe there's a snow-capped mountain and, and it's just this pastoral scene that, that is beautiful. Um, certainly God's mercy and faithfulness can be appreciated in, in such a scene, right? I think, though, that if you read the entire book of Lamentations, a more appropriate picture for that verse would be the fallen rubble of the two twin towers that were struck on September 11th, 2001. I mean, think, have that mental picture the fallen towers, all the carnage, all the rubble. Have that in mind when you hear these verses. The Lord's acts of mercy indeed do not end. For his compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Those seem almost contradictory. I don't know how many wall plaques would be sold at the Christian bookstore if it had a picture like that with that verse. And yet that's exactly what Jeremiah was looking at when he wrote those verses. What was once a great capital of Judah, Jerusalem, was now a pile of rubble with many of its inhabitants taken away as prisoners to the invading Babylonians. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Whether you're enjoying the beauty of God's creation or you're a witness to a horrific tragedy, God's faithfulness is great. This morning we're going to be reading, we're reading a psalm, and uh, it's a psalm that may be familiar to you. In fact, it's probably going to be familiar to you. In fact, 
the verse that was read by both Pastor Steve and quoted by Mr. Richard is a verse that is often familiar and often included on wall plaques at, you know, maybe your home, and that's fine. Be still and know that I am God. I'm not suggesting that you should take that verse down from your house, okay? So nobody leave here thinking, oh, I have that verse up. He's preaching at me, and I got it all wrong. No, that's not it. But I will say that at the end of today, when we look at the context of Psalm 46, the primary context of be still and know that I am God does not mean nestling up on your couch with a cup of hot cocoa on a stormy day, you know, nestled underneath a really nice blanket, not one of those cheap ones that you get at Five Below, but one of the ones that you order online that's really thick and fluffy, and as you're thinking very peaceful, God-like thoughts after your hour-long time in the Bible, looking out at the storm, yet being filled with the knowledge that God is God. Is that true? Should we be still and stop striving and know that he is God? Absolutely. But I don't know that that was the application that the psalm writer had in mind when he wrote that verse. In Psalm chapter 46, we have a psalm where God is fighting. God is fighting for himself, and he is fighting for his people. We see words of strength, refuge in verse 1, strength, obviously, a very present help. Depending on your translation, verse 11 we see this aspect of fighting or military. The Lord of hosts is what my translation says. Yours might say the Lord of armies or even the Lord of heavenly armies. And then that word stronghold there at the end of verse 7. The situation in Psalm 46 is that God's people are facing hostility, maybe from their enemies, maybe from just nature, natural phenomena. Regardless, they were in distress, or they would be in distress, and they were tempted to fight for themselves rather than let God be God. You see, Psalm 46, of all the different types of psalms that there are, Psalm 46 can be categorized as a psalm of trust. A psalm of trust. Meaning this, that there are psalms like this that emphasize trusting in God and the security provided to those who trust in God. And today, we'll see two different types of circumstances in which God's people can trust Him. Okay? Let's look here at verses 1 through 3. And as we look at them, we're going to see, for our first point, that God's people must trust Him in the face of natural evil. Okay? God's people must trust Him in the face of natural evil. Let's look here at the beginning. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. We see here, that God's people must trust in him in the face of natural evil, in that they trust in him as a refuge and a strength. Both of these words are words of defense or protection. 
Depending on your translation, you might have shelter or refuge from rain or from storm. And this word strength, it's might. And it's might that is used in a personal, social, or political way, but used in the context of protection. Not necessarily offense in this way, but more defense. And then in the end of verse 1, a very present help. This isn't just a defense or a protection. It's a proven protection. That word ever-present, it's one who has proven to assist or help in distress or affliction. He is the God, if I can put it this way, that consistently comes to the aid of his people. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. And the psalm writer goes on to describe the times of trouble. Verse 2 and verse 3. And this trouble I call natural evil. Natural evil. Now, these are the unintended calamities that exist universally. They are not sinful by themselves. Mountains falling. Waves crashing. That's not sinful. But they are the product of the world underneath the curse of sin. You know, in verse 2 and 3, we have some poetic language. This was, after all, a song that was being sung by Israel. And so it's poetry. But I don't want us to lose what's being said in the poetry. Let's not get the message lost in the figurative language. These are terrible events what's being described in verse 2 and verse 3. In fact, if I were to substitute some perhaps common vernacular, a very present in help in time of trouble, therefore we will not fear, though perhaps Hurricane Katrina crashes into New Orleans, resulting in 1,800 deaths and over $100 billion in damage. Even though the Great Fire of London, which destroyed 90% of the homes of its residents, even though the Indian Ocean and its rocks quaked, creating a tsunami in 2004, which killed over 200,000 people in a dozen countries. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. But I don't think that these earth-shattering events, and they are, are the only events that can be described here in verses 2 and 3. The fatal sudden heart attack, the downturn economy that results in the loss of your job or the business that you work years to build. As I was thinking of the language here of verses 2 and 3, I thought of, you know, here in the area, we're right on Lake Erie, and over the years we've seen Lake Erie creep up and creep up along the shoreline. I have a good friend who lives right on the shores of Lake Erie, and, and probably four or five years ago, we went to her house, my family, we went to her house, and there was about 30 to 40 uh, feet at least of beach and as of like last year and the year before there was no beach and the lake just kept coming and if you're familiar with you know the efforts that have taken place here in the area about trying to preserve those homes along the coastline of Lake Erie what that does not only just just to preserve the home but to preserve the home value right God is our refuge and strength a very present help in time of trouble. I mean, it wasn't sin that caused the waters of Lake Erie to erode the bank. 
but it is part of what we see in nature. Even though those things may happen, the psalm writer says, therefore we will not fear. Beginning of verse 2, right? Therefore, that's a really important word. And what it does is it connects verse 1 with verses 2 and 3. Because here's the deal. Verses 2 and 3 are really big deals. And the psalm writer is not trying to tell us that, nah, those really aren't that bad. No, they're bad. But there's something that is bigger than those. And it is the refuge and strength and the very present help of God. And if you have God, then you should not fear. If you don't have God, then you should fear. See the difference? The perspective of the psalm writer is not saying, ah, those things aren't that bad. He's saying, your God is that good. He is that big and that strong and that much of a protection for you. In verse 2, Depending on your translation, it says, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change. That's what my translation says. Perhaps you see the word shake. Okay. Now, if you look down in verse 5, I know I'm kind of getting ahead of my point, so sorry. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She will not be shaken. In one scenario, the earth is shaking. And with God in his city, in his presence, there is no shaking. The psalmist sees a solution to the natural calamities. The presence of God, even in the face of the calamity. Because God is there, he can be trusted in the face of natural evil. So God's people must trust him in the face of natural evil. But God's people, secondly, must trust him in the face of Moral evil. Moral evil. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And here we see the moral evil. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. That's different than waves and mountains, isn't it? God raised his voice and the earth melted. We said earlier that the point of the security that God's people have is him and not the human circumstances. God's presence is at the root of their trust. However, the nations rise up against God and his people. This is not a calamity of nature. This is a moral calamity that rises or that comes from the hard-heartedness of sinful man. Not long ago, Pastor Steve preached from Psalm 2. We read in the first several verses, Why are the nations restless? And the people plotting in vain. 
The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's tear their shackles apart and throw the ropes away from us. And early this year, we looked at Psalm 14. We saw the condition of unbelieving man. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed detestable acts. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is the moral evil that God wants us to trust him in the midst of. Yet in the face of this moral evil, we find that God is our personal stronghold. Look at verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now if you remember, we read verses 8 through 11, and verse 11 looks an awful, awful lot alike. Verse, verse 7, right? You compare verse 7, verse 11. Guess what? They're the same. This shouldn't surprise us. Because I want you to think of, mm, I'm trying to think of one of the hymns that we sang maybe this morning that, that had a, a chorus in it. I want you to think the concept of a chorus. When you sing a hymn, there are times where you have a verse, and then you sing the chorus, and then you sing another verse, which is different than the first verse, but you sing the same chorus, right? You don't think, oh, we sang this already. No, you're singing it again, because that's the point of the song, right? Sometimes the name of the song comes from the words in the chorus. That's what verse 7 is. It's the chorus. So verse 1 is like verses 1 through 3. Okay, that's verse 1 of the song. Verse 2 of the song is verses 4 through 6. And then you have the chorus. And the chorus gives us the point of the psalm. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. What is he saying? God is with his people, and he is their stronghold. The Lord is with us. The Lord of armies. The Lord of hosts. Remember, this is a military term. God is fighting. But he's fighting for us. The Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, is with us. He contends and fights for us. Now again, I hope that you're seeing why I would describe the beginning at the beginning of the sermon, the be still and know, and how it's a little bit different than perhaps what we may think, or what we initially think, that be still and know. Keep that in mind, okay? But not only is the Lord with us, the Lord is our stronghold. Though similar, this is a different word for refuge than in verse 1. Because we see that word refuge in verse 1, but then we also see the word stronghold, or perhaps your translation may say refuge in verse 7. Those are actually two different words. And why this is significant is because verse 7 talks about the quality of the refuge. Not just that it exists to, for your protection, but it is strong in quality. That's why I love the translation stronghold. Okay. It's a high place. It is a secure retreat. So God's people will experience both natural evil and moral evil. Neither can be avoided. 
And as they do, and as they are reminded of God's presence with them, they can be confident that he will overcome both natural evil and moral evil. Let's look at verse 3. I'm sorry, let's look at verse 8. This is our third point. God's people must trust him to overcome both natural and moral evil. God's people must trust him in the face of natural evil. God's people must trust him in the face of moral evil. But God's people must trust him to overcome both natural and moral evil. Verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has brought desolation in the earth. That word desolations. Look at verse 9. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Listen, this isn't just kind of like, hey, everybody, let's take our plow, let's take our, our spears and, and beat them into plowshares. You know, the, I think that's what it is, the sword to plowshare. That's not, what the, that's not what's being talked about here. God is creating peace because he wins. He's burning chariots because he won. Remember? Look back at verse 6. The nations made an uproar. The kingdom tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. It's like we say at Grace Bible Day Camp, God always wins, right? Verses 8 and 9. That word desolations, that's not a mistranslation. This is the aftermath of a battle. Come see it. God wins. And so we get to verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. Our God, who will defend his people, asserts his divine authority. He wins because he's God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. I, I appreciated what, what Ben said just before we sang, how he even used the word stop. And that's a great translation of that, stop. For sake of illustration, it might not be the best, but imagine someone drowning. You know, we're in that time of year where people swim. Someone's drowning and they're flailing, right? They flail because they think that's going to help them stop drowning. That's what you do if you don't know how to swim. You flail. But then the lifeguard jumps in to save the person who's drowning. But the person who's drowning, if they continue to flail, will actually prevent the person, the lifeguard, from saving them. So what does the flailing person need to do? Stop flailing. In fact, the flailing could actually injure the lifeguard. This is where the illustration kind of breaks down because certainly we can't injure God, but stop the striving against him. Stop the flailing. He is God. I think of Exodus chapter 14, right? The Israelites have just left Egypt. They're there in front of the Red Sea. And, and, and Moses says to them, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. 
I think, to the end of the story in Revelation, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, where the coming Christ will come and the armies will be behind him. But they won't be fighting. He's going to come as King of kings and Lord of lords. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Here is where we see God overcoming both moral evil. He's exalted among the nations. But also overcoming natural evil on the earth. God overcomes it. And we, just like the readers of Psalm 46, are looking forward to that day. Because, if we're honest, we haven't seen this in totality. Have we seen him make wars cease to the end of the earth? Have we seen him exalted among the nations? I mean, there's been pockets, right? But just like the readers of this song, just like the nation of Israel who would be singing this in their worship service, we too look forward to the day when this will happen. But in the meantime, we are called to stop striving and to know that he is God. And there's something that we must acknowledge here. What we must acknowledge is that the objective here is for God to be exalted. He's the one that is exalted among the earth. This is a rare time in the Psalms. This is really, really special, I think. Most of the Psalms, as you read them and as we preach them, they're language directed to God or to one another, but they're from man. Here, and I don't know if it has this in your Bibles, you may notice quotation marks at the beginning of verse 10. You know why? Because God's the one doing the talking. Now you have, instead of the people singing to God or edifying one another, now you have God speaking. And the point is, I will be exalted. I am God. As I thought about this chapter, I thought about the privilege that Pastor Tim, Pastor Kent, myself, Pastor Steve, Pastor Hobbes, other elders, other disciples, the privilege that we've had to read this verse to some of you or with some of you in times of difficulty. I think of that privilege. And, and I myself have come to this chapter when I felt like things were spinning out of control that there is a great amount of comfort. And here's why. Because if we're honest, we all, and even Christians, we all have lashed out against the Lord. We all have strived, right? See striving, it says. Even as Christians, we all have strived. God, this isn't right situation. God, this isn't fair. God, I know I'm not perfect. But I'm trying to live for you and this is how you repay me? God, I think that this is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be, God. God. 
Some of you may be having an all-out boxing match with God. That your day-to-day thoughts, as they relate to God, look more like striving than they do like being still or stopping striving. If you are bitter against him for how your life has turned out or for how the circumstances played out in your life, you need to stop striving. And you need to know that he is God. These circumstances are working out to his glory and his exaltation. There's something bigger and something better than you and I having the aha moment. Now I get it, God. Oh, we get that sometimes. And aren't we thankful But there are many times where we don't, or we don't right away. And as humans, and with limited ability to see the future, much less see the present, we strive against God. The mountains don't have to be falling into the sea for us to trust Him, do they? And often we find our trust to be lacking in much less serious situations. The strongholds often that we set up for ourselves in opposition to God are cheap substitutes, and they're not going to outlive us. We have a stronghold that's been given to us that's going to outlive us. The strongholds that we erect or that we want when we strive with God, they're cheap substitutes. Yet, as we read in the chorus, this is a beautiful thing. The Lord of hosts is with us. God is our personal stronghold. If you belong to him, and if you fear him and know him, and if he knows you, then he is with you, and he is, with, he is your fortress. But if you do not know him, or if you claim to know him but are striving against him, you will fail. Verses 6, 8, and 9 will be you. But can I tell you a secret? It's not really a secret. Most of us know it, but it's really good. At one point in time, each Christian in this room has fought against God. Every Christian in this room at one point in time has fought against God. Not just a one-time thing either. Not just that, man, I had a really bad day. No, it was our way of life. It was my way of life before I came to Christ. Fighting against God. And it was yours too. If you are saved, and you remember the time before you were saved. We resisted him. We were his enemies. We didn't want anything to do with him. We didn't, we, I mean, and if we did, we wanted him as an accommodation. Kind of like a nice bag that goes with a really good outfit. He was just an accessory. He wasn't our Lord. We were the Lord of our lives. And we were headed for verses 8 and 9. All of us were. But can I tell you something that's just so beautiful and so rich in this passage? And if we're not careful, we can miss it. God's plan is not just to destroy all of his enemies. He will. But God's plan includes converting his enemies into children. 
Look at verse 11 and verse 7. You can read either one. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. I'm going to work backwards. The God of Jacob. Why Jacob? Well, you could say Israel, Jacob, they're kind of synonymous, and they are. But there's only one person in the Bible that I know of that had a literal wrestling match with God. Literally wrestled him. Genesis 32. It's an odd story, I admit. But Jacob was the wrestler. In this pre-incarnate form of Christ, this, this, this uh, angel of the Lord, Jacob wrestled with. But look at how God describes himself. The God of the former wrestler against God. Not only that, but the God of Israel, the nation that was constantly, if I, and I'll use Old Testament language here, the God that was constantly prostituting itself with all of the other pagan nations and being unfaithful to its lover. God is the God of second chances. God is the God who changes his enemies into children. And he did that for me. Because I, because I was the one that had my fists raised. I was the one that was living my way. It was Frank Sinatra on steroids. I did it my way, right? That was the life that all of us lived prior to Christ. And yet the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, is one who changes his enemy. Imagine that. He changes his enemy into his own children. So really, just two points of application. First of all, if your life has been one big wrestling match with God, today can be the day where you no longer strive against him where you finally submit to him because you know that he loves you and wants to make you his child. He is in the business, right? State it that way. He's in the business of changing his enemies into offspring. And if you have just had this bitterness against God, I beg you today, put down your arms. Lay the weapons down. Lay the arguments down. Get rid of them. Stop. Know that he is God. He always wins, but he is not a tyrant. He is a heavenly father that will be exalted. And he goes about changing us to make us more like him. If you don't know him, then I beg today, Acknowledge him as God. Turn from your sin and your lifestyle and your way. Trust in the payment, the one who gave himself to take the wrath of sin on your behalf. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him your Lord and be saved. But for those of you who are saved,
have to say. It's okay to have wall signs in your house that say, be still and know that I am God. That's okay. okay. And it's even okay to have hot cocoa on a stormy day reading at God's word and think very peaceful thoughts about God. That's good too. Okay. But are there areas in your life where you are striving with him? Where his will has been made clear and frankly, you just have a problem with that. Stop striving. Know that he is God. Stop striving. Okay. Psalm 46 is a psalm of trust. And I want to finish, we're not going to finish with prayer, but I would ask the people in the booth, could you put the screen down? Because the last hymn that we are going to sing is one of our brothers in Christ's poem to this song. Now this is a song, but it's a song that you're familiar with. The man who wrote this poem was the father of the Protestant Reformation. His name was Martin Luther. And he wrote a hymn based upon the promises and the assurances of Psalm 46. The hymn is called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. If you have your red hymnals, turn to number 81. The words are going to be up on the screen and Ben will help lead us sing in just a moment. But I want us to read the words of this song and think about what we just talked about. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. We see both the natural evil and moral evil, don't we? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus it is he. Lord Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies is his name. From age to age the same, he never changes. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world with word will fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abides. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sides. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. But God's truth is living still. His kingdom is forever. Praise God. Let's sing as we close in the psalm of trust. Let's stand.